Hi, and welcome to the Red Tunic Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having positive conversations with those related to the industry. My name is Link, and today I'm joined by Jason Smith, an indie game developer that is currently working on the retro FPS shooter Cultic. Hi, Jason. How are you doing today? Not doing too bad. Yourself? I'm doing all right, Jason. Thanks for asking. Now, before we get started, if you don't mind introducing or telling uh, my listeners or the listeners a little bit about yourself for those that don't know who you are. Sure. So uh, as you already spoiled, my name is Jason Smith. I'm a, I'm a one-man army uh, game developer from the central United States, and uh, I'm working on the retro shooter Cultic. It's been in progress since about January of this year. Um, it was just kind of a, a side project for me that I worked on in my spare time, and then it kind of blew up a little bit. And now as of September, it's actually in my, my full-time job. So i I, I'm almost 30, but I finally got, I finally hit my lifelong dream of being a game developer. So there you go. You know, and that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I didn't realize that you had only been doing this since like the beginning of the year more and or less. Um, so you've, you've I, I just want to say it's a, it's a very fantastic game for, for, for the amount of time you've been working on. Now I'm not to say that, you know, I would wouldn't say anything different if it was like three years in development. I'm just meaning, it's it's much further along than than I would have thought. Or sorry, you've been working on it for less time than I would have thought, and it's much further along than I would have uh, guessed based on that. You know, I, I'm yeah. I'm saying weird things. I'm sorry. No, no, I, <laughs> I get I get what you mean. I definitely I'm definitely very happy we're working on it full time now because it was kind of a like. Uh, my because of myself imposed deadlines and then later my 3d realms imposed deadlines uh i was really working on it like anytime i wasn't at my day job i was pretty much working on cultic so it was a lot of a lot, a lot of late nights a lot of burnout and uh, it's really nice to have my free time back now um that i can work on it during the day so but yeah it's a, a lot of work has gone into it um especially since i'm doing you know pretty much everything music sound models code um so it's it, it's a very slow process, um, but I'm I'm really happy to be where I am, and hoping that with the new the new schedule and all the new dev hours, that I'm able to churn out new content and move much quicker, and my my deadlines for release won't be so terrifying eventually, and uh, you know, <laughs> just keep moving things forward. And you know, again, that's that's great to hear, and also congratulations on um, going getting you know, finding the publisher, find uh, th- working it out with Three Realms. I don't exactly know how all of that works, so. Um, I'm aware that what I'm saying is kind of clunky, but congratulations on the the, the publishing, uh, what have you. Yeah, thanks. I wouldn't say that I found them as much as they they found me. I was uh, <laughs> the game was barely like, oh gosh, it was like maybe one. I think I had like the lever action weapon sprite done, and like the first version of the wep of the axe cultist done, and I was still working on like the um like the basic movement and basic enemy ai and i had like one little test area like the game was nowhere like um and and i had posted a few things on twitter and they had kind of they had kind of blown up just because of the art style you know anything that's anything that's got a nice retro aesthetic to it usually picks up a a little bit of steam nowadays just because you know the retro revival is kind of still in full swing and um and then yeah it was like gosh late maybe late february 3d realms reached out to me and of course, you know, I grew up playing, you know, retro shooters and 3D realms games, and so that was pretty surprising to me. And I figured they were just gonna, they were just asking about the project or something. But then they were like, "Yeah, hey, you know, we wanna, we we really like the look of this, and we think it it should be a 3D realms game." And I was like, "What?" 
Uh, sorry, it's it's seven in the morning. I must I must not have heard you guys quite right. Um, which is crazy because the game, like I said, it was nothing. There wasn't even you know there wasn't a single playable map. There you know it was just one little like you know thirty meter wide test area. Um, so that was pretty crazy. And then um, so you kind of put together a little proof of concept for them, and they still wanted to move forward. And they were like, well, do you think we can have a demo ready by August? And I was like, that sure. <laughs> and then and then we made it happen. But yeah, it's been really exciting. Um, they, you know, they've been really great to work with, and a lot of they provide a lot of resources and a lot of expertise, and they have a lot of. Uh, they just have, you know, they've they've got folks working with them from all kinds of backgrounds, and they're working on all kinds of projects and all kinds of engines, and and so it's it's been really cool to see like, you know, the inner workings of like a you know an actual game studio and um, and and have that support, but they've also been great about letting me be flexible and kind of letting me direct Cultic uh, with my own vision in mind. Um, I'm sure they would prefer that I let them give me more staff uh, so that the game could progress faster, but uh, I, I don't think it's quite ready for that yet. Yeah, it's been, it's been really, really cool. And again, that's, that's fantastic to hear. And, you know, uh, I, I, I don't recall when I first uh, stumbled upon finding you on, on Twitter. Um, I do remember though the uh, when you were doing the testing in that like you said that like thirty by thirty or whatever room uh, where you were testing the um, I think it was the axes um, bouncing off of each other or or something like that and you know the I was you know really looking forward to what was going to come of it just because and I hope you take this as a compliment um, just because I don't I don't know but um, you know I was really hoping you were going to continue because I got a lot of heavy blood vibes from it and. Uh -huh. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, um, I I personally, you know, there could that could they could be existing, and I'm just unaware of it. But I just haven't seen a lot of games that had that same blood aesthetic. You know, we've seen the aesthetic for like um, Duke Nukem 3D with uh, Ion Fury. I want to say it is right. um, also I think published by 3D Realms. Um, yep. And like you know, I've seen all the other aesthetics that that tie to different games, but. I was really excited because this one just reminded me so much of blood and, you know, I really just wanted to, to see more of it. And I'm, I'm very happy to see more of it. And, you know, I was very happy to get to try the demo with uh, realms deep and, and, you know, suggested it to a bunch of people. My father being one, uh, someone who um, <laughs> very much should not have been letting me play these video games as like a seven or eight year old, but yep, yep. is what I that is. I pretty much grew up in that same boat. Um, now that's going to lead to this this next question. Then, um, was your mother aware, and how did she feel if she was of the oh, of the games that my dad let my brother and I play? Oh, I'm sure she knew. Um, I never got in trouble for it though. But uh, at the time, so you know, as a as a kid, I you know was really into. I played like Dark Forces and Doom and Blood and and Duke Nukem, and uh, we had like Resident Evil Two on the console and. And so I was always really into like, like horror movies and horror games and and things that were a little more violent in nature, um, you know. Just like you know, I played those more than I did, you know, like kids maybe games that kids should be playing. But the problem more so was that as a kid I went to a a private uh, religious school, um, very 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 conservative, very 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 uh, like fundamentalist, and um, and so those kind of things were frowned upon. And so it was. My, so I didn't really get in trouble for it at home, but I would get in trouble for when I drew pictures of like, you know, of like stuff like shooting zombies, or was like, you know, trying to find sticks on the playground that looked like guns, or 
you know, snuck snuck my scary stories to tell in the dark book to school with me. Uh, stuff like that was more what got me in trouble. And it was also very difficult, you know, to make friends in an environment like that where it's like you're the only kid in your class who's allowed to, like, play video games or read Harry Potter or watch cable television. And so it's like, oh, man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was it was definitely interesting growing up like that, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, so... Oh, just jumping off of that, and I, I mean absolutely no disrespect when I when I say this, um, as someone who grew up going through the Catholic school system uh, in Canada, which isn't so much a private school. Uh, mm-hmm. However, it it kind it's like a ha- it's like a half private that's funded by the church and the public system anyway. Um, I I find it very amusing that you that you were you were coming from that kind of background for 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 schooling and such and that is where all of the uh tension if you will or headbutting came from what you like to watch and what you like to read and what you like to play uh if only because you know right from the get-go for me my my mother was always upset with it Uh, my father's system was um sitting me down in front of doom and going, what are these? And me going, well, they're zombies. Okay, are you okay? Are you allowed to kill zombies? I'm like, well, yeah, they're evil. He went, okay, are they humans? No. What don't you kill then? Humans. He went, no problem solved. That was, I, you know, that was his big brain play of it. Unless they're Nazis. That's that's the important differentiator. And uh, virtual took, Nazis. Virtual it, Nazis. Virtual Nazis. 3D ones. <laughs> Sorry, um, it, took, out there. it took a while before uh, we got to Wolfenstein. Um so that one didn't actually come up. By the time I did get to Wolfenstein, I was old enough to um, have already come to that conclusion on my own. Um, yeah, I, which, I feel like that. I feel like that conversation about zombies versus humans falls apart when you play like Medal of Honor. <laughs> He's like, "What are those? Oh, those are those are soldiers fighting for their homeland." Well, eh, okay. Well, you can shoot those guys. Their ideologies are a little bit different than yours. Um. So luck. Yes, I, I understand. In most families, that would most likely be a very interesting topic to, to have to bridge. Um, uh, for me, me personally, um, I, I am the, the, the byproduct of a Canadian Frenchman and a um, German woman that it's from Germany. My grandfather met her in Germany, and um, she never really shied away from absolutely speaking ill against those atrocities so for me even from a young age um that ideology was well well established so well that's good uh sorry a little bit of a tangent there (laughs) um so jason you kind of you kind of answered a little bit of this um however i'm gonna ask a little more explicitly and feel free to, to gloss over it with if you've already answered parts of it or you feel you answered it before but how exactly did you get into developing and making video games? Well, obviously, as we kind of talked about, I, you know, was a was a, a gamer from an early age, um, and so you know, like when I was young or like younger, uh, like five years old or so, um, I would whenever we were doing like like coloring in classes, a lot of times uh, me and like my if I the like one kid I knew in class who had also played a video game, we would sometimes doodle like like title screens for um for like games that we would make up um so you know we just like make up this be like oh this would be a really cool 
this would be a really cool game. It had X, Y, and Z in it, and it would have this kind of character, and then we would draw it on like construction paper. But the, the <laughs> thing that we always got a kick out of was we, we would always write out like like start game and options on there, and I always thought it was hilarious to put the options thing on there. Um, so I would say that was you know that was my first experience with UI design um, was you know those <laughs> those menu screens on construction paper, um, which look only a little bit worse than my UIs today. Um, but then eventually, when I got a little more comfortable with like a computer, um, beyond just um, you know just playing games on it, I started figuring out how to animate because I really wanted to to be to learn how to animate. And by animate, I mean I figured out how to set the slide transition time in PowerPoint to a tenth of a second, which is kind of like animating. That's like that's that's like a Star Fox frame rate. So um, so I started making really really stupid cartoons in powerpoint and i'd you know generate these powerpoint files that had like 600 slides in them um, and of course our poor dell dimension 3200 <laughs> would just absolutely crawl when you tried to open up a powerpoint that large um, but then eventually i got turned on to uh to flash and downloaded a perfectly legal version of flash um and that was of course much much better so i got and that was like in the era of like the early 2000s when like like stick figure flash videos on the internet were really popular and uh you know the, the golden days and uh so i kind of learned how to do animation that way uh, moved away from doing like sprite videos um, into more of like stick figure videos and stuff like that and then eventually we decided that i wanted to to make i didn't much just want to animate i wanted to make games too um and so I tried doing that just with like like point and click stuff in Flash, but I didn't really understand Action Script at all. It was a little too complicated for me. Um, and then a friend of mine on good old MSN Messenger that I talked to, um, but turned me on to Game Maker, which I think I believe it was Game Maker Five at the time was the down the version I started with. Um, and of course, I believe they went through Game Maker Eight and then it became Game Maker Studio, which it is today. And it was very beginner friendly. Um, <laughs> not not that it taught very good uh, like like principles or disciplines for coding because the GML language is very, very loose with its syntax. But, you know, like I started making sprite games, stealing every sprite I could from, you know, Spriter's resource and, and making Metal Slug games that were 40 times worse than Metal Slug and Super Metroid knockoffs that were way worse than Super Metroid. And, you know, it just kind of started there and then evolved and grew. And I started to learn how to do my own sprites and started learning pixel art and, um, you know, and I actually didn't switch over to Unity and C Sharp until 2016. Um, so that was like, I probably used Game Maker from like 2006, 2005-ish, all the way up until 2016 when I finally switched over to 3D. And, uh, and you know, that was like starting fresh, brand new language, never touched 3D before. I had never touched modeling before. Um, and my, my God, actually, actually my Facebook memory yesterday uh, was when I posted my very first model, and that was hard to look at <laughs> compared to. I mean, I'm not 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 a great model by any means now, but oh, my God, that was oh, that was bad. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, and then that's just kind of working on that, and here we are today. You know, thank you for sharing all of that. You know, that's really interesting. Uh, starting starting with PowerPoint, killing your computer, and you know, moving to that perfectly legal copy of flash and you know moving on and on and on um so thank you for sharing you know the the point a to, to point b now based on what sounds like a a very interesting and varied uh 
experience. Is there any advice you could give for those seeking to get into the industry? And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let you say don't do the PowerPoint thing, just because I think that's a rite of passage for most. You have people. to start in PowerPoint. You have to start in PowerPoint. That's where everyone gets their start. You know, John Carmack. You know, or uh, sorry, John, John Romero started in uh, in PowerPoint, and uh, you can just edit that out. The fact that I just used the wrong name there is gonna gonna get me in trouble. Anyway. Um, uh, I would say, and this is what I usually tell people who are trying to get into um, like game development or like coding in general, is like, and and this is probably more of an issue for like younger folks than it is for people getting into it as an adult. But like, start with a realistic scope. I think everyone or a lot of people that I've talked to who are like wanting to get into game design, they get into it because they have a game that they really really love, and um, and they want to like make that game again. You know, like so for a long time it was like people were getting into it because they wanted to make their own um they wanted to make their own minecraft for example like that was a really big one for a while everyone wanted to make a voxel game but um it's like when you first start out like you're going to start with hello world you're going to start with with the rollerball tutorial immunity you know you're going to start with pong and like you have to start small because you have to learn the ins and outs and you have to learn the essentials and you have to learn the principles of of this you know the the coding language you're in and the in the engine you're using and you know I'm learning stuff about C# sharp all the time. I literally just learned about like like virtual and override functions like a month ago. Like <laughs> I just started learning about like abstract voids or uh, abstract functions or classes. See, I don't even know what to call them. I just learned about the word abstract as it as it applies to C# sharp like 2 weeks ago. Um so like just just be you know go go into it with a realistic scope and understand that like you're going to ha you're going to start small. Um because that's you know just what you do. Um, but probably my biggest advice, because I think a lot of a lot of folks, when they first look at it, they you know they get into it and they're like, I want to make the next Halo or I want to make the next whatever game it is that they really love and they're really passionate about, and then they get in there and they realize that like, oh, mo 3D modeling is, is its own thing, and 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 coding is its own its own huge thing, and netcode like multiplayer netcode is 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 <laughs> a complete mess, and and so there's a lot of things that have to come together, and these games are made by huge teams, you know, sometimes with like 100 or 200 people. On these big AAA projects, so you know, just meter your expectations and, and really focus on on you know one one small thing that you could do. Like like if there's like a, an idea you have for a fun little like arcade shoot 'em up or something like that, like start there. Or um, something that what I've always done <laughs> to kind of get started in in engines is I just work with like the tutorials that that like you know like for example Unity comes with a a very common there's like a first person shooter tutorial and a like a top down survival shooter tutorial that um, used to be really common with the older versions of Unity. I'm not sure if they're still like the go-tos, but um, you just like go through those, obviously, and you learn everything that they have to offer. And then at the end, when you have the finished example project, you start to try and build on it by kind of reverse engineering uh, the stuff that you've just done. So like you finish the first person shooter tutorial and then you're like, okay, well, I wanna make this enemy shoot faster. I wanna make a bigger version of this enemy. And so you're kind of taking like a foundation of what's there and you're just you're kind of working with code that's already been established. So that way you can kind of dig into existing functional code and look at it and figure out how it works and why it works. Um, and then, you know, you just kind of make changes and evolve what you kind of have there instead of trying to build something entirely from scratch where nothing is working. And, you know, you don't have any like building blocks to start with. That's kind of how I started off with Unity and started off with Game Maker was just, you know, I, th I think in like the entire first year that I worked with Game Maker, I was just like modifying their platformer tutorial over and over and over and over again. 
It was just like, I'm going to take this platformer tutorial and I'm going to make Metal Slug. I'm going to take this platformer tutorial and I'm going to make Super Metroid. Uh, I'm going to make Mega Man. It's just kind of that, that same thing over and over again. And, you know, thank you for that advice. You know, it's, it's, I, I always like hearing that that is reinforced only because, you know, when you, when you look at some of the game development, uh, like Reddit, for example, or other places, and you'll have people be like, well, what's your advice to, to you know, someone that isn't starting out, like, what's your advice? And always it's, you know, it's a very similar thing, you know, said in different words or said, you know, to go about it in different ways. And you always, always without fail, have one person say, well, why bother starting slow? Just go big. And it's like, you know, it, it makes me happy uh, to see you know, to have to have people say effectively what you have said in different ways, you know, with with, you know, different examples of how to start to get big or or what have you, just because it really just continuously emphasizes that this is like a hard earned lesson that everyone has. And, you know, you should save yourself the absolute nightmare and just take this wonderful advice that everyone is trying to shout at you when you just don't want it. You know, I don't mean that you as you personally, just you as, you know, the, the yeah, yeah. generalized. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm not a professor of game design or, or, uh, or any kind of, any kind of uh, aficionado on the topic. That's just kind of what's, what's worked for me and kind of the advice I've shared with friends of mine that want to get into game dev is, you know, at least when I was younger, a lot of it was people who were like, well, I really, you know, I really want to make, I really want to make a halo. And it's like, well, I, I, I've been doing this for like four years and I can't make a halo. So like, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be the, I don't think it's going to be the first thing that you do. So maybe like, maybe dial your expectations back a little bit. Um, but it's just like you, you know, you can't skip straight to a finished product without learning all of the essentials and all the things that, you know, that make the finished product work. And a lot of, you know, it's a lot of those, a lot of those principles and disciplines and ins and outs of the system and syntax of the language and all that, all that fun stuff that you just have to brace yourself for, you know, it's, the, the finished product, you know, the, the creative parts of it are really fun and the finished product is great to enjoy. But in order for there to be a functional finished product, you, you, know, you have got to put in the work. So Exactly. And, you know, I, I really liked the, the advice that you gave on taking like a tutorial after you finish it and then kind of throwing stuff at the wall in that to see what works. Only because, you know, it's, it's it, to me, that sounds a lot like um, taking risks some may be small some may be big but in like a very safe environment because at the very least you know what worked to begin with and you can always dial it back to where it worked last to go oh, okay this doesn't work but i can try this instead you know right yeah it's, it's always it was always refreshing to cut because if you build off of a tutorial that has documentation usually that documentation is going to explain why a lot of the code is in place so like you know if you look at a bit of enemy ai and you don't really understand how you know, like what, what, like what does this ray cast this here? What, what is ray casting? That doesn't, what this doesn't make sense to me. You can go back and look at the documentation, and not only is it going to explain what ray casting is, it's going to explain why you use it in this scenario. You know, like this is how we determine enemy sight lines, that kind of stuff. Um, and and the Unity tutorials, at least, were always really well documented. So, again, I unfortunately haven't, or maybe fortunately, haven't had to dive back into tutorials in a very long time. So I'm not sure if those ones are still available, but. Um, the Unity's got a just absolute buttload of documentation, so I'm sure that there's something else there, and you know, boundless YouTube tutorials and whatnot. But yeah, just I mean, don't be afraid to lean on existing resources, um, especially like if you're getting started with. Well, I'm just going to use Unity as the example here. Like, 
don't don't be afraid to download like free graphics and stuff from the asset store. Like it's you know it's gonna hamper your personal development if you you know if if you spend forever trying to find like the perfect model or something when you could just be grabbing free assets and rolling. But I'm not advocating like asset flip games. Like if you have if you have a good artistic vision for a game, you should definitely make it happen. But if you're learning, if you want to learn how to code a first-person shooter, you know you shouldn't let programmer art stop you. You know there's free assets out there for a reason to get people kind of up and running and off the ground. So just don't be afraid to lean on tutorials. Don't be afraid to lean on documentation, and don't be afraid to grab that nice free model pack. Again, and you know, thank you very much because that also is is fantastic advice that I think. Uh, you know, if uh, like me personally, if I were to try and make a game, I would, you know, that advice would have been fantastic to know only because my artistic capabilities are not that great. And that in the past when I made attempts was always my wall. And, you know, had I just been smart enough to know that I could have just found some free assets, uh, it would have my, my what I'm doing now might have been different. You know, I'm not saying it would have made a huge change of change in my life, but you know, it could have changed some things. No, it's like I mean, like Phasmophobia, which is one of one of my favorite games right now. So we we'll have that to talk about later. Um, like the almost the entire game was like assets, like like pre-made, like Unity assets. But it it didn't matter because in that case, like the assets did what they were meant to do. Um, and and the developer used them to create this this great experience of a game. And like you know, the game isn't toting its wonderful art design. It's not toting its realistic environments. It's toting, you know, tense cooperative ghost hunting, and that's and that it delivers on. And so you know, the only people that are going to know that it's using assets are other developers who have also seen those assets before. But like, you know, it di didn't stop it from being a phenomenal game. So you can't. And so I wouldn't say that you can pitch a game as like having this 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 rich handcrafted environment and world and the entire thing is just stuff that you downloaded but you know it's i don't know, i i don't think that every game needs to sell itself on its art you know i think the i think the the indie and retro revival has shown us you know if anything else that that's can be the opposite i mean we'll give the give the example of minecraft which you know by nowadays it has all has had all of its re you know sprites redone and a lot of its texture work redone and um, but I mean, like Minecraft starting out was was about as basic as it gets, but the gameplay experience itself was was something totally unique. So, so yeah, I mean, don't don't let don't let art hang you up, and don't don't be afraid to to lean on those uh, those assets that are there for you. Definitely. Now you did you know the, the, your current favorite game, so why don't we get more about Phasmophobia? Okay. Yeah, I'll gladly talk about Phasmophobia. So I wrote down for my two current favorite games, um, I wrote Phasmophobia and then also Resident Evil 4 VR. And Resident Evil 4 is one of my favorite games of all time. And I'm a big, uh, big VR believer, big VR pusher. Um, so the fact that Resident Evil 4 came to VR and was phenomenal, has uh, that's been taking up a lot of my time. But uh, Phasmophobia has been like my obsession since it came out last year. It is such, like, such a unique experience. And just like... It was really, really refreshing to see a horror game that wasn't the jump scare streamer bait kind of um, horror game that, excuse me, has kind of, I don't want to say plagued the industry because I know there's a lot of people who do enjoy them, but has dominated the industry since, you know, like Five Nights at Freddy's kind of became this big, this big uh, kind of symbol for being able to generate easy content on YouTube or on Twitch or whatever. Um, so to have Phasmophobia, which is a game that is effectively jump scare free outside of organic events, like the ghost decides to, you know, shut a door in your face or appear right in front of you. But it's all, you know, it's just like 
it, it's it's so cool and it's all all the randomization and and the co-op experience with your friends and uh it's 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 a really really well designed game um and i am i honestly like <laughs> i'm really really jealous of the of the developer who came up or you know the developer of the game who came up with the idea because like man was it did it take off that game has has so many so many people playing it still and like so many concurrent players and like just thousands and thousands of overwhelmingly positive reviews it's a, a really cool game have you played it at all yourself i i personally have not i am not a huge fan of horror games gotcha. um i'm like i've been trying to get into them uh you know i've been playing some of the dread x collections because that you know i'm using that as my my introduction uh-huh. uh because they're you know a, there are a good spattering of different approaches right um in terms of some are just off the wall horror things like squirrel stapler um and then some are a little more traditional and some are you know a little more building up the suspense and and what have you what have you uh but my i have a few friends that have played phasmophobia and and he you know he has nothing but good things to say to it um in a very interesting way of playing it but yeah yeah (laughs) i it's it's a very i would argue that it is itself like a very good introduction to horror games because like a lot of like gosh like 80 percent of the horror and phasmophobia is just like it's like you and like what you make of the experience um because like like i i have a couple friends that i play it with and they it it doesn't scare them at all like they just you know they just kind of like run around they're kind of playing the game just to get hunted by the ghost and then i phasmophobia scares the crap out of me still like i i get so tense when i am like when i'm in there trying to gather evidence and i know my sanity is low and i know that like we're getting close to the point where we can be hunted but like it doesn't you know it doesn't have any jump scares it doesn't have any you know like really big loud in your face stuff it's just a very organic tense horror experience that like and, and it's just like this like you know like the ghost is is you know invisible most of the time and you don't know where it is and and you're just kind of hearing things kind of go bump around you and trying to figure out, you know, if that, did that door just move? Did that just move? You know, like trying to track evidence down. And but knowing in the back of your head that like the longer you're in there, the more at risk you are of like of getting attacked. And it's just uh, it's so fun. I really like it. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind uh, as something to, to take a look at just because, you know, I have been interested in it. Like I said, just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of slowly introducing myself into that scene. But Hearing that it could be a very good introduction to that that genre or or what have you, um, that kind of moves it up on my uh, my own personal meter of of things to try, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a good it's a good horror game for people who don't do well with jump scares like me, um, and people who aren't into like um, horror that kind of delves more into like you know like the violence and gore, like the you know zombie shooters and the like. Um, it's 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 a very good um just like mystery game and puzzle game kind of trying to figure out you know what kind of ghost it is based on the evidence that they leave and and if you can't get all the evidence trying to kind of decipher the ghost behaviors um so it's got a very good element of just like emergent surprising gameplay um and and a good like puzzle element to it but then also there is the bonus of it being really really creepy (laughs) on top of that well, yeah. Thank you very much for that recommendation. Like I said, I'm going to uh, I'm going to move it up on my list of things to to look at, knowing that it's maybe not as harsh or as um, what have you as I as I initially thought. Yeah, it's and it's also really cool. Like, 
understanding it from like a like a, a code standpoint too, like kind of just observing the ghost behaviors and kind of knowing how um, a lot of that stuff works on like the back end is, is kind of cool too, which is the same thing with like Minecraft. Like eventually I feel like you stop enjoying Minecraft as like this really cool new fresh world and you start looking at everything in terms of like like mechanics, like, you know, do I plant this next to this in my farm so I can get the maximum, you know, grow speed or, you know, in Phasmophobia, it's like, okay, well, we could, you know, we could light a candle in this room to prevent our sanity drain, but we know that if it's this kind of ghost, lighting a candle gives us a 10% higher chance to be hunted. And, and so, yeah, if you ever want to play it, give me a shout. I will, I will, I will be your guide into, into that world. Well, I might, I definitely might take you up on that if you're with your offer. So, Jason, you know, we've talked about your 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 current favorite game and, you know, uh, Resident Evil 4 VR as well. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe step it back a little bit and maybe talk about your favorite games as a as a younger Jason and why that why those games were your your favorite games. Um, so my favorite game of all time um, is 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 and always has been Super Metroid for the Super Nintendo. Um, it was, I think, my the first game I played, but it was for sure the first game I ever beat. Um, I don't know how I beat it, but as young as I was, but I definitely know I beat it um, before I was out of kindergarten, so I would have been like five. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if my dad helped me get past really difficult parts in it or what, but I know I beat it. But it's just that's it's uh, as a kid, it just engrossed me. Just like it was just you know it was. Like it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great game. So as a kid, it was really engrossing, and, it, and it's a fairly accessible game too. You know, it doesn't have a whole lot of really hard platforming. It's pretty generous with health and and missiles and stuff like that. It's got you know great soundtrack and a really you know a really uh, it's just engaging world and great sprite work and and so as a kid, you know, it really drew me in. But then as you know, as a someone getting into game design, it's ju it's just like it's such an interesting and amazing game from like a design standpoint. Like everything about it's just done so well. Like the pacing is great and like just the little subtle lessons that the game teaches you as you play it without having like hand holding tutorials is great and like the subtle, you know, storytelling in the game without um I just don't a ton of story there. But you know, it, it's like you just kinda get to explore this world and and learn about it as you go and there's no like cutscenes or text boxes to read and it, and it's just like and then just as a Super Nintendo game, like from like a technical perspective, just you know, all all the sprite work that went into it and all of the just uh, everything about it. It's such a cool, such a cool game. It's such a cool piece of like gaming history. But yeah, Super Metroid is definitely my all-time favorite. I'm still a big fan of the Metroid series, but nothing has ever come close to Super Metroid in terms of like sheer enjoyment. A lot of that's probably nostalgia. Um, but I, I play through Super Metroid like four times a year. Which is if I'm ever having a slow Saturday, I'm like, I'm gonna play through Super Metroid again. Uh, well, you know, with with mentioning that, what is your time right now? Um. So I I don't I'm not a big speed runner. Um so I usually try to go for as many items as I can. Um I usually beat it in about three and a half hours with about ninety percent item collection is kinda of my that's my, my median time. You know, I'm not huge into the, the scene, but you know that's that's a real like because I know I do know Met Super Metroid is a relatively um if you know what you're doing, it's a relatively straightforward, a relatively short game. Uh, but you know that's a that's a pretty decent time for ninety percent, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I feel like every now and again, and I really screw up my routing, and and I just like completely forget to grab something, and then have to you know backtrack halfway across the map, which if you were a speedrunner would probably be a reset. 
Um, but I still like, I don't think I've ever 100%ed the game because I'm not sure that I know where every single power up is. You know, and I just, I just recently replayed it again before I played Dread. And, uh, and I found a pickup that I've never found before because I've never like used a map to try to 100% everything. Um, so I know that there's probably like two or three more that I've just literally never found before. Um, and this, this time playing through Resident Evil 4 in VR, I found like two or three items that I've never found before. And I've played that game many, many times. So that's been that's been really cool, too. You know, I imagine playing that game through in VR would make it much easier for some of the things to be seen only because, you know, you when I played it, I played it on the Wii. So I was playing it on a 480 interlace. Um, Right. And, you know, like that's. Not really graphics to write home about today. So, you know, it was just me sitting on like a CRT TV squinting. Like, I think I know there's something over here that I'm supposed to be doing or finding, you know, when you're shooting uh, the medallions yep. or whatever. And I, I imagine the VR would make that much easier. You know, you're not sitting there with your nose right against the screen going, is that something I need to go shoot or not? That's right, because you get to go put your actual nose up against the thing, which which has been really cool because like they um, armature did a really good job of like. You're kind of like up and, and increasing the level of detail in the world of Resident Evil 4 and getting to look at everything like up close and kind of like look around at your leisure without being restricted by the third person camera or, you know, the poor ADI <laughs> display resolution. That's it's uh, it's so cool. And there's like so many little details that I never noticed before that um, that you get that you can pick out in VR. But um, yeah, I would say while Super Metroid is probably one of my, you know, my favorite game from childhood. Um, I would say that Resident Evil 4 is one of my, like, all-time favorites as well. Probably not as much as Super Metroid, but um, so I feel like one of the things that makes a game, like, a favorite game for me is it has to be a game that doesn't have any parts that I don't want to play. Like, parts of the game that you just really don't like. Um, and every time you play through the game, you're like, ugh, like, I'm probably going to log off and stop playing once I get to this part. And Resident Evil 4 only has one part like that for me, and that's the stupid hedge maze with all the dogs in it. Um, and in VR, it wasn't that bad. But in pa- in Pancake, with the horrible turn speed, it, oh, oof, yeah, that's not a good one. But, yeah, so, uh, yeah, Super Metroid, to answer your question, favorite game of all time. Played it as a kid, loved it. So I'm going to follow this up, you know, your, your favorite game of all time as a kid, you know, current kind of, or more current favorite games. But, um, you know, is there a game that you have that is, like, your your comfort game and i say that from the standpoint of like do you have a game and it could very well could be metroid so if that's the case by all means we can you can just say that and we can move right on but like do you have a game that if no matter what no matter how you're feeling no matter you know what's going on in your life if you put that in to whatever console or boot it up or whatever that you are going to immediately be brought back to that moment of when you like when you first played it or you know like uh you know you're, you're the the have your have all of the senses in your brain start firing and you know like you know let's say it was metroid and you, you got it on a christmas morning and you boot it up and like that brief moment when it's starting up your brain is firing off and it's you you're smelling the christmas cookies or whatever you know like do you do you have a game like that and if so do you mind sharing it yeah so i mean super metroid definitely falls into that category um but there's also like um like a, i feel like link to the past really fits in that category any game that uh, like is just easy to just turn on and play um kind of fits that bill for me but link to the past was a uh i don't 
I don't remember if I ever actually owned it as a kid because I know I rented it from the video store a lot. And so I have a lot of I have a lot of really fond memories of just like like the soundtrack of Resident Evil 4 or sorry, of Link to the Past and the intro jingle playing and just like remember like going to the video store. It was a few blocks from our house where I grew up and and my parents would rent you know, like on the weekend and my parents would rent a movie to watch that night and I would get a Super Nintendo game which was pretty much always Link to the Past. Um, and then just like booting that up. So Link to the Past is a very comfort comfy nostalgic game. Um but I think nowadays like um I think Minecraft is a really big just like just sit down and just like zone out and just play kind of game, you know, for comfort as in terms of like I'm stressed out and I don't want to have to play a game that's going to that's going to take a lot of a lot of thought or a lot of, you know, a lot of focus or is going to be really difficult and is going to frustrate me. I feel like I like to you know, just get a couple buddies and hop on Minecraft and just like play a Saturday away and uh it's, I definitely miss like the very first time that I played Minecraft, like uh, just not really knowing what anything was or what to do or any of the recipes and and just being like really, really surprised and, and immersed by this this infinite voxel world that you could dig down because it was really kind of a first of its kind game. Um, I kind of I really miss that, but it's it's still a really good just jump in, fire up a server. Your friends can hop in when they're available and. You know, just kind of play the weekend away. So that's that's a very good like de-stressing game for me. Not so much comfy as in like the nostalgic factor, but comfy is in the way of just you know kind of shut the brain off and just dawdle around and do some mining and build a house and start a farm, enslave a bunch of villagers, sell all your produce to them. You know, all the relaxing things. So yes, you know, thank you for sharing. You know, first and foremost, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I'm always. You know, uh, I, I, I know that with some of that, that question, especially there's a, a, a bit of, um, of, you know, vulnerability to it. But, so, you know, thank you for sharing uh, for what you, you know, for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, on the topic of Minecraft, only because you mentioned enslaving the villagers. Um, it, right. I feel the need to share this story because it's been a while that I've had got to share this with, with anyone. And I think you might appreciate it. So um, years back, a friend of mine, we started, you know, he was on a server. I joined him. and he, for whatever reason, found an island that took, you know, about 20 minutes of actual walking to get to, even with his little bridge. And he decided on that island that he set up this castle, effectively, that he wanted to have um, a villagers set up a market. And there was no villagers around. So naturally, we spent three days um, digging down and then out uh, under, effectively, the ocean. We popped up, luckily found a, um, found a village. Uh, and then in the end, we ended up sending like the entire village back. We were, you know, as we're doing this, we're letting them repopulate with a farm for them, sending them back via minecart that was automatically bringing them up, dumping them into a pit. Then we would sort them manually, you know, okay, you're a good one, push them into a car, uh, stall. If they weren't, um, we got, Lava. yeah, basically we got the ingenious idea to make a, to make a pit in the, the middle of the room with a switch that opened up. It was glass glass topped. It would open up, drop them in, close it, fill it with water, um, drown them, and then <laughs> drain the water and drop them into lava afterwards. Because, you know, it's not really insult until lava's involved, right? That's right. Yeah, you got to destroy their drops and their experience, too, to really, really just send the whole thing home. Well, when, when they wanted, you know like a diamond and they wanted to give you a piece of paper for it you know they kind of they were kind of asking for it that was our opinion yeah 
Yeah, we we really like to set up. Um, we we used to do the. I don't think you can do it anymore. But we used to do the the Turbo Scrooge method, where you would build like the the five by five houses that had eight doors on them, and that made the villagers think that there were eight yep. houses, and they would just repopulate like crazy. Um, but nowadays, we usually do the um, the uh, the thing where you like if you're playing on hard. I think you can infect and cure villagers over and over again to like make their prices get lower and lower to the point where you can sell them like a potato for an emerald. And usually, I don't think we've ever gotten there, but our goal, our like end game, our artificial end game for Minecraft is to get to the point where we have a beacon pyramid, a max level beacon pyramid made entire, entirely of emerald blocks. That's usually like our like, when we get to this point, we're probably done with the server. Um, but. Yeah, I think I think my favorite memory of Minecraft ever is uh, uh, there was a period in my second year or between my first and second year of college where I was unemployed and I got a job at a PC repair shop, was super excited about and then it closed a week later and that sucked. Um, so I had an, a period where I didn't have a job and we just ran this like we we did like a like a like a, a clan war server we did extreme like the extreme biomes where like the biomes are huge like uh and we found a seed where it was like a really small like maybe like 50 blocks across island with a couple of trees on it which was originally just like two blocks in the middle of the ocean and then there was like eight kilometers of ocean around us on any side and there were like eight of us on this island and we had just like divided off into like two separate clans and we like didn't really pvp each other a whole lot but we were like very territorial and we would like trade for resources like we built like a trading hall where you could like throw the item that you wanted to trade into into like a glass container and then both parties had to flip a lever to accept the trade and then it would like transfer them to the other side with pistons and it was just it was just super fun because it was like eight there was like eight of us on there we all just had a ventrilo server running and would um and just like whenever people were online, they were online. And when they had to go to class or go to work or whatever, and, and like it just, we just played on that server for like weeks. And it got to the point where we were getting really, really crappy with each other and like invading each other's bases. And like we had, we had dug a tunnel that led out underneath their valuables chest. And this was back when uh, chests were still a, a full block instead of a partial one. So you couldn't see below it. And so every time they would come back from a mining trip, we would go into our secret tunnel and go beneath their base and skim a few diamonds and a few valuables off, off of their 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 hall. And uh, yeah, it was a really good time. And then I got a job and I didn't get to play. <laughs> you know, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's always, always great to hear um, about video games borderline destroying friendships. Oh, yeah. So, Jason, I, um, I don't want to keep take up too much more of your time and keep you keep you around um however you know there was there was something you had indicated you did want to talk about uh earlier on and that was you know a popular game that just didn't click and i think you kind of alluded to that as well earlier um so what is a popular game uh that just didn't click with you i feel like we i feel like i've talked about this um in like every podcast i have been invited to and that's that I did not like Doom Eternal. I could not get into it. Um, and, and it really sucks because, like, I, I loved Doom 2016. Loved it. I played it through. Um, like, it's one of the games I play through, like, every year. And I it's just everything about it just clicked with me. Like, the, the and that is one of those, like, you know, subtle kind of no hand holdy games in terms of, like, storytelling. 
and it's just there's so many different ways that you can play it um just depending on like which runes you get and which kind of guns you specialize in and it's you know it, it's the environment all feels it feels like a very real environment like it's like a it's like realistic spaces everything doesn't feel like a giant arena all the time and and just i i, I really enjoyed it and then doom eternal came along and <laughs> i was super psyched for it watched all the trailers you know like listened to all of the soundtrack previews that came out which were which are still great um and then i picked it up and i played it and like 10 minutes in i was like nope this ain't it i don't like this and it was like from the moment i saw the first like spinning glowing item pickup i was like oh no what have they done and i just couldn't get into it like it's 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 a very well put together game very polished it looks it looks gorgeous it sounds amazing audio the audio design is great the music is great but the gameplay just did not click with me it was so gimmicky like the game the game just wanted you to play a certain way and i i can't and i, and I know that there's a bunch of different weapons you can use and a bunch of ways you can approach combat but it's like one of, like you fight the the arachnotrons it's like one of the first enemies you fight and if you don't shoot it in the weak point, like it's like, oh, you can shoot the turret on its head to, you know, to deal more damage. And it's like, if you don't shoot the turret on its head, you'll run out of shotgun shells because the game only gives you like 10 to start with or 16 or however many it is. And it's like, OK, so right off the bat, the second enemy that you face, like right after the, the weak zombies, the second enemy you face is one that if you don't shoot it in the weak point, you run out of ammo. And I was like, uh, this is not this does not bode well. But it's just like the overall design of the game, like it, it felt a lot more like Serious Sam and the way that like every single level didn't feel like like a real organic place that you were in where like, you know, history had occurred and stories had, had been carried out. It was like it was arenas. It's all arenas. Everything's an arena. It's like like the old I think I think like Yahtzee makes the joke about like rooms full of chest high cover, you know, and all those third person shooters from the late 2000s. Um, but it's like. It's just you know it just it just didn't feel like you were playing an experience anymore. You weren't like living out this this thing that the Doom Slayer went through. You were now playing like an arcade game. You know it was like the big spinning glowing power ups and the big the big you know or big open arena designed areas and then just all of the gimmicky fights. And it's like you know it's like in in Doom 2016. It's like you have the chainsaw if you like need to recover ammo. But in Doom Eternal, it's like, no, you have to use the chainsaw. Like, you have to recover ammo by the cha using the chainsaw. You cannot go through a level and just be a good shot. You'll still run out of ammo. You have to use the chainsaw to get ammo back. It's like, okay. And then it's like, oh, but you also have to use this flame cannon to get armor. And you have these grenades, and you also have this other grenade, and you have this arm, this launcher on your back, too, and it fires two different kinds of grenades. And, and like, I mean, uh, it was, it's... Too, it was too much for me How, and it's like it's it's fine to give the player all of those options but doom eternal like required requires you to use them all and it's just what just didn't click for me and i gave i tried it on three separate time like three separate times i started it over really tried to get into it and every single time i got frustrated in just the first area the fact that you can't punch zombies to death kills me like in in doom 2016 your melee is is functional like you can you can beat imps and zombies to death because you're you're the doom slayer you're like a you're like a, you're a demon killing machine but in doom eternal like you spawn in the very first area in the very first level and there's like these little scrawny limping zombies and you can't melee them to death like you it's just it, if you punch them in the face there's this big meaty satisfying punch sound and then they just kind of like stagger a little bit and then they just keep coming and so it's like there's not even a way to go through and, and melee them and it 
it it was really disappointing because I was really looking forward to it, and and it really just didn't click with me. But again, that's not me saying that Doom Eternal is a bad game. It's I mean you can look at the reviews for it. Clearly, there's a lot of people that enjoy it a lot, and it, it and it's very well put together. A very talented team worked on it, but I I just couldn't get into it, and that's kind of how I'm feeling now about Back for Blood too. <laughs> I'm really 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 disappointed with Back for Blood, and I like. I I played so much Left 4 Dead. Like I bought it when it launched on 360, the first one, and then bought it when it launched uh, Left 4 Dead 2, and then bought both of them on PC. And I have sunk so many hours into them. One of my favorite games of all time. So much fun to play. So accessible. It's so it's so simple, but also just like it's it's so well done. And then Back for Blood, you know, got announced after years and years of, of no new Left 4 Deads on the horizon. And of course, you know, same same studio i was like no there's no way they can screw this up and and i've been really really disappointed with it too and it's kind of just it's just like i don't know like it feels like like there was a lot the original had a lot going for it in terms of like just like the gameplay was like was like deceptively simple you know i mean it's a horde shooter so it's not like there's a lot of a lot of like deep nuance to the gameplay but it was just you know it's like enemies had distinct looks and functions so like you know crowd control and prioritization was easy you know you had like proper musical cues when different enemies spawned all the special infected had very distinct looks and distinct functions so you knew based on where you were and how much health you had and and based on your surroundings who you needed to target first um and and back for blood just kind of dropped that entirely you know every single zombie just kind of looks like the same mound of weird gray flesh but then like each special infected also has like three different subtypes and so if i see a a guy with a big arm i don't know if he's the guy with the big arm that grabs you or the guy with the big arm that punches you or the guy with the big arm that slams the ground and then like the and then uh, it's just it's not it doesn't feel very inspired and the gunplay it feels like they really went for the kind of like wide as an ocean deep as a puddle thing where you've got a whole bunch of different guns but none of them really do anything special and like i don't know why you, you would use an smg at all because the smgs have magazines of like 18 rounds and all of the assault rifles do more damage and have larger magazine sizes to start. And then the difficulty curve is is ridiculous. Like the recruit difficulty is so pathetically easy that you could probably solo it without breaking a sweat. I know that we ran through like the first uh, two acts without any trouble. I don't think we lost anybody a single time. And so we're like, okay, well, this is this is pitifully easy. We shouldn't jump it up to the next difficulty. And oh my God, the <laughs> the jump in difficulty is absolutely absurd. And it's not just like, it's not just like enemies deal more damage or you know, it's enemies take more damage to put down. It's just like the game, just throws all balance out the window. It's like you've got you've got so many mutators and modifiers on each map that you you like you don't really know what you're going into, which which is good for replay in terms of like you know keeping things fresh and randomization. But the veteran difficulty requires so much planning. And so much like leaning on the card system to like build a class that, you know, you can get completely screwed over if you have the wrong, if you get like the wrong mutators, you know, like if you get a mutator where the enemies are on like, like explode when they die, then suddenly your up close and personal melee class becomes completely useless. And it's, it's just, uh, I, 
I don't know. And, and I, I did, you know, I, of course I went online to try to figure out like, is everybody feeling this way? Am I doing something wrong? And a lot, you know, a lot of what I see people say is that it's like, oh, back for blood, you have to get good cards. Like you have to play through the game and unlock all of the cards so you can build a good, a good deck. But it's like, okay, well, I, I don't want to play recruit because it's, it's, it's so easy that it's not even fun. And I don't want to play veteran because it's so ridiculously unfairly painful that it's also not fun. And so I don't understand why there wasn't like a a normal difficulty for like I'm I'm comfortable playing shooters I'm comfortable playing horde shooters I have a full team we want a challenge but we also want something that's that's actually possible to beat I mean some of these maps we play on veteran there's so many special infected coming at you you literally have like zero time to breathe you have zero time to to reload you have zero time to like check out the environment and that was one thing that Left 4 Dead really excelled at was that like the AI director did a great job of creating, you know, like hills and valleys and hills and valleys of difficulty. There were swarms and then there were rests. And during the rests, you got time to to check out the environment. You got time to let your your survivors dialogue play out, the story play out. You got time to like take in everything that was going on around you and take in the world. And and and, and I don't think Back for Blood remembered how to turn off the zombie spawners because it's just like it's it's just non-stop or it's the complete opposite and it's not spawning anything and that's the really frustrating thing for me is that if i'm playing a map like or if i'm playing any other game we'll take like the boss fights in metroid dread for example the boss fights in metroid dread are tough they're there well, for me they're tough because you you have to learn the boss's patterns you can't just do like super metroid and have so many energy tanks that you can just power through it you have to learn the patterns you have to dodge you have to have good timing and so they're difficult and they can be frustrating, but they're the same each time, you know? So it's like, if I die to this boss, I can, I keep trying it. I learn his patterns and eventually you take it out, but you can't do the same thing in Back for Blood because the director is so ridiculously random. And it's like, you know, we, we would play a map and, and there would be like a giant boss zombie that would spawn immediately out of the safe room. And we've all got like tier one weapons. So it just like, you know, we, we use all of our ammo on this thing. And so, you know, we take it down. We've probably lost two survivors already and had to revive them. And because of the trauma system, those survivors now have like half of their max health. And we, you know, we don't, the shop is already closed, so we can't buy more ammo. And there's no, you know, there's no med kits that can restore, um, that can restore like that lost permanent health. And so it's like, okay, so now we're at the beginning of the super long map. And the team has been crippled by this like boss encounter. And there's, you know, there's like, what, what do we do now? Do we just, you know, suicide and restart? And then you, you power through and the game just like throws waves and waves and waves of zombies at you and waves and waves of special infected and the special infected don't look distinct and they don't have anything distinct about them. So you don't really know like where they are, what they're doing or which ones you should prioritize first. And it doesn't matter because some of them take so much damage to put down that like you're basically you're just like damage trading at that point. Like you're 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 not prioritizing targets. You're just trying to like take the least damage because there's no way to get away from it. And then your team dies because you're so strapped for resources and there's no health spawns anywhere. And so you're like, well, crap, that sucked. And you and you you roll again. You're like, all right, we're going to restart. We're going to try it again. Okay, we know that we've got this giant boss monster right outside, so let's be ready for that. And then you do the level again and the giant boss doesn't spawn. And there's a bunch of health everywhere. And the enemies and then like the zombies, like you fight like half of how many you fought last time. And the special infected seem to keep spawning the easy ones. And so it's like, okay, I guess the director swung over easy, but now now it's not challenging and it's not fun. It's like, I, I was okay with 
the concept of learning how to take on this level and learning how to prioritize it. But now it's completely swung in the opposite direction, a direction where there's no challenge anymore. And so it's like the, the AI director just can't build balanced experiences. It's either like this absolutely painful, horrific slog through an unbalanced mess of you know way more enemies than you can possibly handle, or it's this this weird lull where you know you, you just aren't really getting anything thrown at you, and way more health spawn than what spawned last time, and you find you know like a legendary weapon right off the rip, and it's just weird. It's weird, and it was underwhelming and really really disappointing. Um, but to Turtle you know, Turtle Rock's credit, they you know they did put out a pretty promising looking. Um, roadmap for the next few months, including a lot of balancing changes and and a new difficulty mode, which I'm really hoping is between recruit and veteran, because I'd really love to give the game a shot. I'd be happy to play the game all the way through and build a good deck of cards so I can build a good class, but I don't want to do it on the painfully easy difficulty where it's just not even challenging, and I don't want to do it on the painfully hard difficulty where I keep dying and not earning experience towards my cards. So I'll probably pick it back up here in a few months um, and, and give it another try, but that was a, a horribly, horribly painful uh, experience, a disappointing experience. But, you know, a lot of my friends who never played Left 4 Dead love Back 4 Blood. And so it's like, well, clear, clearly, you know, it got good reviews. So, you know, some people seem to enjoy it. So, but not me, man, not me. <laughs> so two, two questions. And at the risk of maybe opening up a wound, um, had you tried World War Z and, you know, was that any different from for you if you had? So I actually compared Back for Blood to World War Z a lot in the same kind of thing where the AI director that powers the match doesn't seem to have the same like level of, of tuning and nuance as the Left 4 Dead one. Because like World War Z, it, it was fun to play co-op, but it, it just felt super generic. Like it, it didn't really feel very inspired. Um, it was fun. It was challenging. Um, the Horde mechanics look it looked cool to see the hordes all climbing over each other and stuff um but it's just like I, I i'm not a game reviewer and so i i can't really i'm not really great at like picking things apart um but like like left for dead had had like the ai director was 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 done so well like the experiences that those that that game world created um were like where you had this is kind of repeating myself but where you you had moments that were intense you had those intense gauntlets of, of fighting waves of zombies and and trying to get from point a to point b or waiting for rescue to to arrive but you also had moments where you know you were just you were exploring you were taking in the environment you were letting you know you were letting the dialogue between survivors play out and world war z just like they were just like, no, you're here to shoot zombies. Like that's that's the point of our game, which which is fine. Like if that's the design you're going for, but um, I think I enjoyed World War Z more than I did Back for Blood. Um, it felt kind of generic to me, kind of just like not really memorable. Um, but the difficulty was balanced so much better. Like there were a couple of maps that my buddy and I, you know, screwed up and we had to try them again. Um, but it never felt like we were. It never felt unfair. Um, you know, it was maybe a little generic. The formula was kind of the same for most maps. Um, so every, every, every map in World War Z kind of just felt like walk from point A to point B and shoot zombies. There weren't really, I don't, I can't really remember any of the maps. Like they weren't memorable enough. They didn't have those memorable set pieces like Left 4 Dead has like the, you know, the, you know, just like the, the really cool finale holdouts and like the, gosh, the like rock concert holdout from rock concert holdout, excuse me, from, from Left 4 Dead 2 and 
I don't know. Yes, they, they felt very similar to me. I got very similar vibes from Back for Blood and from um, World War Z, where um, you know it's a solid solid gunplay, solid solid game, solid code, but just not inspired. Just doesn't really doesn't really grip you. Doesn't want to make you play it for you know a decade <laughs> following, but. Yeah, and you know that's very fair considering that Left for Dead's uh, one and two, or the pack, however you want to refer to them, is still, I believe, has a fairly decent and healthy uh, online play. So you know, yeah, I can understand, and hopefully, um, with Back for Blood, they can introduce something to kind of hit that middle ground where it works a little better for people. Um, and the the other thing I wanted to mention, this you know, in no way is this me trying to. Uh, sell you or change your opinion or, or what have you for Doom Eternal. It's more just saying, I, I understand completely what you were saying there, because, um, you know, Doom Eternal is, it's not it's not Doom 2016. It is a very different game, a fundamentally different game, right? Like, um, right. my girlfriend tried it right after beating 2016, and I, like, I, I got Doom Eternal when it came out. Um, uh, I, I played through it on a weekend or so, um, you know, played through on like the second hardest difficulty, did all of the challenges, everything, everything, everything. And, you know, as I'm doing that, she's playing Doom 2016. Uh, and then like she immediately goes to start it and I knew she wasn't going to like it because I, I just knew. And, you know, she had a very similar approach uh, to, to you where, you know, she didn't like having to try and juggle, you know, all, all the pieces. Because like you said, you know, you can you can get out there when you're fighting the first um, mastermind or whatever spider bot I forget what they're properly called and you arachnatron yeah. thank you and you can do it without popping off its its um its gun but you're not gonna have a good time with it you know it's right. you're gonna you're gonna struggle because you're gonna have to wait wait uh, waste so much ammo or you're gonna have to be learning at the same time as trying to just brute force it with also the management system that the game you know arguably does try its best to to um bring you into gently but you know it, it very much expects you to play it in a certain way and if you don't play it in that certain way all of its you know all the ways that it all the systems that it sets up to work well with each other don't work well when you're not playing it like when you know, I, I, I'd say it's more like in Doom 2016, you kind of go into the sandbox and they're like, here's like you and you kind of said a similar thing where in Doom 2016, you have all these weapons, you have all of this approach. It gives you, you know, in the sandbox, they give you, you know, 20 different shovels, 20 different sandcastle molds. And they just say, well, go nuts, do what works for you. In Doom Eternal, you get to the sandbox and they go, well, here's this shovel. Here's this, here's this mold. You can use them here. Here's this shovel and this mold. You have to use them here. And it, it tells you what you can do and where you can and should do it, right? And I, you know, I personally, I loved Doom Eternal. I, I'm, I'm the last person that'll say it's, you know, that people that don't like it are, are wrong because I've, I've actively sold people on not playing it because of, um, you know, knowing that they're going to have a similar, uh, similar set of feelings as you do. Like, for example, my father... Um, I, I, he wants to play it. And the only thing I can say to him is not to play it unless he can get it for like $15 only because I know he's not going to enjoy it and he'll, he'll do his best to power through it. But I just know him as a old man in his sixties now that he, 
doesn't have the reaction time necessary to do a lot of some of the stuff. Like, I don't know how far you got into it, but there's a fair amount of uh, platforming things that you have to do that are somewhat technically precise, and I don't think you'll be able to do them um, even on the easiest setting, you know? Like, there's so much of that game that I... Well, I think, as I said, they did a, a great job with it, that it's too much of a, uh, too much of a divergence that I think it would alienate some of its audience. Well, I, I don't say, I shouldn't say think because, you know, people, you know, you exist, people like you exist that, that say it, but like it alienates some of its audience that wanted more of Doom 2016. And instead, as you said, they kind of gave an arena shooter that is, you know, set up in such a way that it's, it's a puzzle game. And, you know, like I said, I'm not in any way trying to, to argue that you should try it again or look at it differently because, you know, I 100% see and agree with everything you say, you're saying about it. And it's a shame that that's what happened, if only because it's the Doom franchise and it's kind of... If, 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 if the tables were turned and it was me that wasn't able to enjoy it and I grew up, you know, grew up tolerating and somehow making it through Doom 3... Um, and, you know, everything else, I would be like incredibly crestfallen that this the staple of my childhood just wasn't something that was made for me anymore. You know, so like yeah. that's like that's what I mean. I can know like in no way am I trying to say, you know, oh, you should look at it from different uh, set of view or anything like that. I'm just saying I 100 percent understand where you're coming from and like not against you, but it's just I'm oh, it's yeah, I'm disappointed that that's what happened. Because, you know, I, it's, if, 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 it, if I were in your shoe, I would just be incredibly upset that I wasn't, it wasn't made for me to enjoy anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, so the fact of the matter is that, like, like I am, for all intents and purposes, kind of a casual gamer. Um, you know, like, I, I play a lot of different games, and I feel like I'm very invested in the gaming scene. But, like, I, I don't have a lot of free time to play video games anymore. You know, I'm... I'm getting I'm getting old and I have responsibilities and and life things to do and so any game that any game that requires me to get good I'm just not going to be able to get good at because I just don't have the time and so like 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 which sucks because like like the like the Souls like series like Dark Souls games I love them from an aesthetic standpoint like I think that they are aesthetically just absolutely gorgeous games and I've tried one and two um, several times and I just I do okay uh, when I'm running around in the main world and fighting basic enemies because I feel like um, for the most of the time in Dark Souls, you can be like 70% proficient at the game and still get by. But then in the boss fights, it's like if you screw up one time, you're dead. And I'm just I'm just not that good at games. Like I, I don't have the reaction time. I don't have the skill. And so like, though, and, that, and that's kind of where like Dread, like Metroid Dread has started to trip me up because it's like, it, you know, out running around in the overworld, you can you know you can get energy pickups from enemies and you know you you can forgive your screw ups by you know by by you know taking some time to recharge but the boss fights you don't have a lot of room for screw ups like the most of the bosses can you know take like one energy tank per hit and so you have you have to learn the patterns and that and that you know that frustrates me because I'm just not that good um, and so and so I just like I play a lot of casual games I play a lot of sandbox games and I like to play games that um, that kind of lets you develop your own play style and, and lets you just be good at the game in your own way. Um, and I, and so like, you know, doom 2016, 
did that. Like Doom 2016 gave you a setup where if you wanted to be slow and precise, like if you wanted to use charge shots from the uh, from the oh gosh the the railgun plasma cannon, I can't remember its name right now. And then like the uh, the heavy machine gun had a had a scope on it. So like if you wanted to be the guy that just like you know popped off slow shots, you could do that. Um, you know if you wanted to run around and just be up close and and use the chainsaw a bunch and and and, and you know not waste ammo but you know kind of just spray and pray like there was there was room for that then doom eternal kind of came up with this thing where it's like we're going to make a game that's highly technical like there are a lot of aspects to combat but you have to use all of them to succeed and i you know i'm just that's just not the kind of game that i'm good at and it's kind of like um actually we're actually kind of bring this back around to cultic briefly but um it's what it's one of the one of the main things i really like about cultic and kind of the boomer shooter arena is that you know a very large chunk of the games that have dominated the boomer shooter revival are um those those fast-paced like mobility shooters where you're you know it's like you're you're sprinting around you you have to you know stay mobile and have to learn all of these different amounts of tech and all these moves in order to in order to excel at the combat and that's you know that's kind of what doom eternal was and those just aren't games that i'm a good at and b um, interested in because that's just not you know I don't I don't know I just I don't I don't move at that pace and I I just don't have the time to learn the game and so it ultimately turns into a frustrating experience for me and like and you know like I said that's not that's not a mark against those games that's definitely not a mark against Doom Eternal or a mark against Dark Souls it's just an incompatibility an incompatibility between me as a gamer and a human being and and you know the kind of time and investments and skill sets that those games require. Um, so I will be stuck watching playthroughs of Dark Souls uh, until you know, until maybe I maybe I retire someday and I actually have the time to sit down and really, really you know get good at everything and, and practice it. And that, but yeah, no, Doom Eternal was um, was very disappointing. I I kind of wish I had picked it up. I uh, know I pre-ordered it. <laughs> I wish I had picked it up for twenty dollars and then realized I didn't really like it. Um, but no, it and Back for Blood I both both pre-ordered, um, but. I'm not super sour about it because you know I know they're both they're both great games I'm sure to some people and the developers worked hard on them and making them good experiences so I'm happy to support them but uh, I just just wish it had had been a little more my flavor. Definitely, you know I like I, like I said before I 100% understand where you're coming from and like I I believe I mentioned this to you when I when I first reached out that one of the things that I like most liked most about the Cultic demo is that. It was, and I don't mean this in any way of an insult for anyone that, you know, might hear it. It was very straightforward in that it was, you know, it wasn't so much like um like a movement-based shooter or any of that. It was nice, easy, like I have a gun, I'm going to shoot a guy. And I, I believe as well that, you know, one of the things I, I liked the most about it was that it was 100% a old-style game that I knew that I could send my dad and go you're gonna like this game it's going to be a game that you can play without getting frustrated without getting stressed out like you know like you you as you said you know having to worry about getting good um you know that it would it would deliver on an old stool old style of gameplay that would just be enjoyable and easy to to pick up and again i don't mean that in any way of an insult because you know like i i i very much like the idea of that i like the idea of some of the new, you know, the, the new movement-based shooters and stuff, I think they're wild being able to, you know, bounce all over the room like a rubber ball that's, you know, wound a little too tight and, you know, all of that. But at the same time, 
there's a lot of technicalities to that kind of stuff that, you know, as awesome as I think it is, I, I don't always want to have to sit and do that. You know, like I don't, you know, one of the things about Doom Eternal, I'll use this as an example, is, you know, in terms of getting good, so to say, is I had to be in, you know, um, um, I forget the, the, the terminology, but like psychologically, I had to kind of be in like a trance for it, like a meditative state for right. me to play that game really well, because there's a lot of stuff, a lot of balls to keep in the air and everything. And that is a, that is a draining way to play games. And like, I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, it's, it's fun, it's great, you know, similar to when I tried to play Dark Souls and everything. Um, and I think you would have might relate to that, but you like, you have to be in a very specific mindset and you have to be always on there's no being off and the yeah. one of the things i really liked about your your cultic demo was i at no point felt like i needed to be running at like a hundred percent on like it didn't feel like i was trying to assess all of the threats all over the place having to figure out what was going to do this what's going to come from there whatever i was just able to relax and feel like i was just playing a boomer shooter feel like i was playing a game when i was younger and, you know, like I said, for me, uh, immediately when I was playing it, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, I can sell this game to my dad and he's going to he's going to play it and he's going to love it because it's not going to be a game that he as a aging six, like an aging old man that he's going to struggle with playing. He'll be able to put it down to easy or whatever, and he'll be able to have a blast because from what I've played so far and from, you know, what it sounds like. Um, it's not going to be a lot of technical aspects to make X, Y, and Z happen, you know? So, um, right. I just wanted to, I just wanted to mention all that as a, as a, as a point of, you know, what, what I really enjoyed and was really impressed by. Yeah. It's cool. Cause like, like while, like, like you said, if you put it on standard or casual, the game, like the gameplay is, is, it's pretty relaxing and very, very forgiving of the player making mistakes. But like, if you dial it up to very hard or extreme, then there is, you know, there is a lot. Um, there is a, there are a lot of little you know like bits of tech in the game that you that you can take advantage of to kind of make that work because like you know ammo gets a little more scarce and enemies have more health and so you know you have things like like you know making sure you're getting headshots for extra damage or using weapons that penetrate enemies if they're grouped up tightly or using things in the environment like explosive barrels and lanterns to set up traps or you know baiting enemies into infighting with each other. Or, you know, waiting, you know, getting enemies to throw dynamite at you and then picking it up and throwing it back. And so, like, you know, at, at a, on easier skills and more casual play styles, you very much can just kind of blast your way through. The game will give you enough ammo and you get enough health to kind of just let you run around and really feel like a, you know, like a, like a really powerful character. But then if you want to dial it up and you want to have that more, and, and that's kind of the thing is, like, a lot of people who have played Coltic and have given me feedback, a lot of them are you know, like our, our big boomer shooter aficionados, you know, the people who play a lot of shooters. And there's a very, very big gap. <laughs> You've got a lot of people who, like, I play Coltic on hard. That's, like, the comfortable setting for me where I feel like it's challenging. But, like, I had people who were, like, extreme is too easy. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, and because, you know, there's folks that are there used to playing, like, Doom Eternal on the hardest difficulty. And, you know, and they get it, like you said, it's like, you watch a video of this person playing Doom Eternal on the highest difficulty, and they're doing all these, all these rapid movements and all these, you know, like using all these different strategies. And you know, like you said, there, there's zero chance that they're not sweating while they're playing. Like that's definitely they're, they're it's an intense, like a very intense 
focused experience and like like that i mean extreme on cultic is 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 still not that kind of experience like it's not it's not a fast frantic run and gun it's just more of a methodical style of gameplay like you just have to you have to you know think about how to use your environment and you know be cautious about getting shot out in the open and and yada yada but but then like the survival mode that i added with the halloween update um does get a little more frantic and i like i don't think i've ever gotten better than like a d on extreme and like day two somebody messaged me on discord I was like hey i got an s rank on extreme i'm like jesus cool but i, I really want to see a video of them doing it because i want to see like how they play the game because like i'm used i i test cultic on hard and that's the difficulty i play on so like my play style is tailored around the hard difficulty which is you know large you know enemies do a little more damage and take a little more damage to put down themselves but for the most part you can still kind of just run and gun you don't have to be super cautious um and so that's the way i'm used to playing but folks who boot cultic up for the first time and immediately go for extreme difficulty they are going for the you know the nail biting difficult edge of your seat experience from the get-go and i'm just not used to that so if i try to play cultic on extreme i get dead i get dead very fast um so that's <laughs> just it's it's going to be fun it's going to be interesting trying to figure out what difficulties work with different people and what people find difficult and what they don't i didn't expect somebody to s rank extreme in 24 hours but alas here we are it happened but yeah i don't know it's I, I always feel like there's there's always going to be like that discussion about you know like should Dark Souls have an easy mode or you know should you know should these games that are designed to be punishingly difficult experiences should they have a mode that's more accessible for you know like for you know, casual gamers like me people who suck at, uh, who suck at games like that and I, I mean I don't know it all boils down to accessibility I guess you know some people feel like you're sacrificing the vision of your game or you know you're sacrificing what dark souls is meant to be if you make it more accessible to people who aren't good at the game and um i guess that's kind of up to the fan base and the and the developer to decide you know i i'm a big accessibility person you know i i have i i don't really subscribe to like you know difficulty porn so to speak you know i, I don't think there's much i don't think there's much value in, in making your game brutally hard just so that you know some people can't play it but um there's clearly a very very large set of people that uh that do subscribe to that so um and clearly dark souls is sold very well so clearly they're doing something right yes all of that very very good points you know i i i think i i don't really want to get into the accessibility discussion just only because that is a whole other can of worms that i think would take you know a very long time to discuss however you know i'm i think i can say probably pretty well that you and i are very close to being on that same um same plane of of mindset for it um you know i'm very straight up and down because i'm very much a fan of accessibility um i think uh you know there, there's arguments that can be for and against it but end of the day i always worry that by intentionally making a game that is not accessible for whatever reason you are effectively closing the gates and creating a toxic environment. And, you know, and, you know, an easy example for that one is, you know, like the get good mentality that that existed around um, Dark Souls right out the gate. Like when it was made, you know, the the immediate argument was, well, you just have to get better. But, you know, if you're a casual player, you you could be trying your best. And if you just want to experience the world and and, you know, sometimes your best isn't good enough. And anyway, um, 
like I said, I think I think we're closely aligned, and I I just don't think that uh, this is the time or the place to try and have that discussion. Only because, as I'm sure you've had before with other people, maybe in public or in private, it is a massive can of worms that it's yeah. very difficult to navigate. I think. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, like, like, uh, um, like I'm, I think Tubi Channel has like a casual difficulty, or at least a, a lower difficulty level. And on one of my playthroughs, I tried playing Doom Eternal on that difficulty to see if that made a difference. And like the thing with Doom Eternal for me is that I didn't ever really find that it was too hard. I just found that I didn't enjoy the gameplay. You know, it like wasn't an issue of them making the game like like I figured if I played it on a lower difficulty, I wouldn't have to adhere quite as strictly to the way that they wanted me to play. Um, but it's just it, it, it you still kind of do like ammo is still really limited and enemies you know it's it's still very much like now you have to you have to hit the weak point you have to do this you know you have to use the chainsaw you have to use the flame belt you know you have to do you know it's just and i it just was like it's too it's too rigid a play structure um and i think that you know so in that in that case and so the segue i was trying to make was that like there's an argument to be made that maybe like dark souls is the same way you know maybe you know it's not so much about like the the get good crowd being able to claim that they beat dark souls so much that it's like if you if you make the gameplay of dark souls casual then is it is it really dark souls anymore so for the argument of like i just want to experience dark souls he's like well if you if you play through it and it's easy then are you really experiencing dark souls so much you know versus where you're just experiencing the art and the the world so you know, it, it can go either way. I just, I just want bosses in Dark Souls to do a little less damage, <laughs> or maybe I, have, or maybe I have two lives for the bosses because it's like I really enjoy, um, like it's one of those, like you said, when you when you play Dark Souls, like when I would decide to just like sit down a weekend, like I'm really gonna try to try to learn this time, and you do, like you get really used to your weapons and the and the speed of your character and the the timing of your dodges and your animations, and during basic combat with regular enemies it's really fun and i really get into it but it's just like when i get to the bosses and it's like if i screw up one time i die and then it's not like i can just walk in and try again you the bonfires you know six miles away and there's a hundred enemies that you have to just like you can be super slow and methodical and kill them all again or you can try to rush through but then you'll probably take a bunch of damage and and then you'll show up to the boss without full health and you know missing a couple of sunny d's and <laughs> yeah so it's i don't know it, it's just one of those things that it's it's a little it's a little too punishing to be enjoyable for me especially because like most of the gaming i do nowadays is social um so you know i have a ton of single player games i want to play but if a single one of my friends is online you know we're going to play phasmophobia or seven days to die or minecraft or arc or whatever instead you know because it's like i want to be able to catch up with my friends and play games with them too and and so but yeah no that would be a fun thing to discuss but it's uh accessibility in games is certainly an interesting an interesting topic yeah and like i said i i i unfortunately not the time and place and i like i said i think we're more or less similar so i'm not everything you said i, I agree with so you know there isn't really much i have that i would like to add beyond you know what you've that i agree with pretty much everything you've touched on you know no, that's fine. Now, Jason, as I said a little earlier, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. 
Uh, however, if there's anything else you wanted to throw out there, you know, a cool game, what you're doing, something you feel more people should just be more aware of, uh, the floor is yours. As well, please let everyone know where they can find more inf information about you, and I'll also include that information in the episode description. Uh, sure. So one of the one of the questions you sent me um, was uh, my favorite trend in gaming recently. Yeah, sure. Um, and I actually, um, after I talked earlier about kind of, you know, not being afraid to lean on um, like uh, like asset packs, uh, free models and the like, um, one of my favorite trends recently that I really wanted to talk about was kind of the the return of like retro games, but specifically like the like the PlayStation aesthetic, like that kind of like low poly, limited view, you know, low, you know, like low res texture, low poly model. Um, and obviously a... It's a, it's a great aesthetic for me because that's what I grew up with. Um, you know, PlayStation was my second console after the Super Nintendo. Um, so that's a very nostalgic thing. But, like, what I really like about the PlayStation aesthetic um, is that it lets people create games and, and really just focus on the gameplay, like the game design. Because the models, like, I mean, regardless of your modeling skill, if you know how to open Blender and throw a model together, chances are you can make a half-decent-looking PS1-style model. Um, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the nuance of that aesthetic is that it, you know, it does kind of hide, um, you know, like the, the, the true artistic quality of your models. And, and part of the PS1 aesthetic is that, you know, some of that stuff was just left to the imagination. You know, the textures are small, the models are, are, are blocky, and it was on a, you know, a small CRT. So you've got, you know, you've got, you know, like, even myself, like, I started making games. Uh, when I first started doing 3D, I was kind of doing that. PlayStation aesthetic because it's you know it's easy to do it doesn't take a long time to put the models together, um, but it's just really cool to see people creating standout experiences and, and really unique titles where they're able to get this gameplay idea that they have this game idea of theirs and they're able to make it playable and they don't have to like sacrifice by having programmer art or you know more uninspired generic looking like uh, asset pack models because they have this aesthetic to lean on that even if, I feel like even if you do even if you do like the PlayStation aesthetic poorly it still will have a unique look to it and and, and that can make it just interesting to look at um, even if it's not the best graphics in the world a unique art style um, is generally still enough to get people to at least look at your game so I don't know, that was probably the trend that I think is really cool is um, just in general games being able to have more simplistic graphics um, and still be appreciated and still kind of stand out on their own. Um, because I think, um, you know, as as next-gen consoles and PCs improve and we have more and more teams doing photorealistic, uh, you know, textures and models and, um, you know, still being able to have game development accessible to people who don't have AAA budgets and AAA art teams um, is really important. And I think we'd miss out on a lot of really unique ideas for games um, by you know not having a platform or not giving a voice to people people who can't produce hollywood level cgi so i think that's a that's something i really enjoyed in gaming and that's kind of been around for a while since the big like pixel art revival um as well but same, same kind of deal but I, I think it's really cool you know i i do agree with you there i i i wasn't aware that it had existed for as long as it did however i've been seeing it popping up more often um, and I, I agree. I think it's I think it's really nice, really interesting to see just because, um, you know, we're at a time where it's easier to make games. And I am just a huge fan of 
in general, the aesthetic that we are seeing and how, you know, we're getting, we're, we're not getting stuff where it's just all uniform, so to say, you know, it's not, um, it's not always the same. Like when in the PlayStation era was, you were had a good chunk of games that were going to look like X, Y, or Z, you know, the Super Nintendo, the 64, the PlayStation 2, etc. Like they, they typically fell into those chunks. And then now we're getting, you know, games released on consoles, uh, physical releases on consoles and all of that, where just because of the age we're in now, we're getting, like you said, we're getting, you know, older style looking games. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of seeing the PlayStation era uh, set of graphics come back just because I think, like you said, it can, they can leave a lot to the imagination by what they intentionally choose to cut because now they don't have those limitations that they have to cut things. Now they can actually right. cut things intentionally to create a sense of, you know, dread or, or drama or whatever. Like, you know, an older PlayStation game, a character might have had dead eyes only because they didn't have the pixel budget to give them, you know, good proper eyes. And now they have that, but they can still choose to not because they want those dead eyes to be something that makes you kind of feel uneasy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think what's going to be really cool is when the, I think naturally, you know, we kind of had the, the big pixel and pixel art revival, and now we're going into the, the early early 3D PSX era revival. And I think what's going to be really cool is what's going to come next. I would imagine is kind of the the PS2 era revival, which is where like, um, you know, you had you know higher poly, more defined graphics, but the consoles still weren't really capable of producing, um, you know, like photorealistic effects. You know, shaders weren't like as common or able to be done on the hardware, and so you have you have instead games leaning on really unique art styles. Uh, you know, like look at like you know, like um, like things like gosh, like Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter and or even even like the Metal Gear series. You know, it's like you're you're you have a, you have this console and this design era where you can't really produce realistic graphics or you can't really shoot for photorealism. Um, so you kind of establish an art style instead. And I think I'm I'm really excited to see kind of what pops up out of that you know these teams that have you know modelers and textures and artists who maybe aren't like doing triple a photorealistic stuff but they're still you know really good modelers and they have a good art team and so they can produce things that look that look really unique and have a really unique feel to them and so i'm really hoping that we kind of get a a good solid era of of unique games or even like good like throwback titles like if we get a revival of title you know of those like good old like 3d platformers or um you know like kind of the early style of of ps2 first person shooters um but you know it has you know more you're you're leaning less on the the fog and the low poly count and more on um you know just having a good solid art style that's not necessarily like realistic it's not necessarily taxing the software but it, you know just it just looks good and um, so I'm, i think that'll be kind of a cool way for all of these unique indie ideas and unique indie teams that have kind of come out um, to create games that, you know, kind of still stand on their own visually too. And they're not just using the, the low poly thing as a crutch so much as they're, you know, le leaning into a, a, I don't know, a specific art style that, I don't know if that makes sense. But uh, I have a, a point I'm trying to make here. I'm trying to think of other games to give as an example, but 
I don't know. I, I'm excited to see what comes next. You know, I, I agree completely. And I think that that optimism, I think it's the I think it's the best way that that could have ended, you know, just because there's always the chance that something can go the other way. But being able to, to talk so um, optimistically about that future, I think is just fantastic. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, I think we got a lot of stuff, a lot of cool stuff coming, too. And I think. Uh... Uh, I think I'm going to have a, a very full plate <laughs> pretty soon of my single player and otherwise backlog is going to get even more ridiculous than it already is. So especially if we keep seeing this push for like VR versions of, of, of full length titles um, like the like Resident Evil 4 VR and stuff like that, because, oh, my God, I will pretty much spend money on any time they make a VR version of a game that I already enjoy, like the like the VR version of San Andreas that they teased is going to be that's going to be wild like these these full because it's like like you know vr kind of started in the same way that uh like the wii you know like the nintendo wii did where it's like you've you're you're leaning on the technology and it's and it's novelty to make kind of like gimmicky games where it's like oh wow this is really cool i've never played a game in vr before or like i've never played a game on with a wii mote before where i can like swing it around and stuff but then eventually like you have to you have to move away from that and so you know we saw like games like Half-Life Alex and Boneworks and uh, and like Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners and Blade and Sorcery and all these games that were like, OK, well, like, how do we how do we marry the novelty of motion controls with like the realism of of being a person in like a real person in a world like, you know, you're you're there, you have a physical body, you can interact with things physically. And um, and so now we're you know, instead of having like gimmicky arcade games and gimmicky like you know shooting gallery games i'm really excited to see how you know these games like like doom 3 and like resident Evil 4 and san andreas that are already fully fledged titles that that are that are good games that have good foundations um and they're just taking what's already a good foundation and applying the vr spin to it like uh, like resident Evil 4 vr they easily you know armature studios easily could have left all of the all of the buttons and levers and cranks and stuff in there is just button presses, but you know, they didn't, they're like, Oh, let's let the player actually interact with all of these. And, and so, you know, they, obviously they took the combat of Resident Evil 4 and made it translate to VR and it translates very well, but you know, they saw all these other opportunities for like, you know, what are, what are ways that, that we can take this game world and translate it better to VR. And I think San Andreas, like, like at, at the minimum, if it has like full, like touch control driving, like grabbing and turning the wheel and stuff, that's going to be cool. Really cool. Because that's like my favorite part about No Man's Sky VR is that when you're flying around your ship and dogfighting and stuff, you're actually like holding the joystick and the throttle. And you know you're not using the the thumbsticks on your con on your controller. You're actually you know you're in your cockpit. You're actually grasping the the controls, and it, it's very cool. Also very nauseating. <laughs> so, but uh... you know, and yeah, I also agree with that. You know, I'm I'm also looking forward to the future of VR. I've, I've played it numerous times. A friend of mine has it. So whenever I get the chance, uh, well, pre-pandemic, whenever I got the chance, uh, I look forward to post-pandemic. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to personally having um, enough room to, to get a, a proper VR setup. You know, I, my girlfriend has the, the PlayStation 4 VR, but you know, games like um, Sword and Might or Sword and Magic or what have you, um, you know, those games just don't exist on on that. And those are some of like the most fun games to, to get to experience with VR and 
and such. So, you know, I look forward to being able to at some point experience everything else that's, that it has and everything else that's coming. Because, you know, uh, that as well is something that I think is going to be a, a blast as more and more gets made. Yeah, I really hope that uh, the Oculus leans away from the Facebook integration with its headsets um, because the Quest 2 is a, a phenomenal headset. I like I, I get people's hesitance towards Facebook. I've had an account since I was like 17, so you know it doesn't really bother me anymore. But like it's such like oh god, it's such a good headset. Like it's got a, it's got good picture and it's it's you know it connects to the uh, computer wirelessly, so I can you know I can play my my PC VR games just over my router without any tethers at all, and that works great. And then you know it's you know and oh, it's so cool, and uh, and it's it's three, like 300 bucks. It's so much cheaper than it, like <laughs> so much cheaper than everything else on the market. I honestly don't know how the index like stays competitive, being a grand, you know, and, and it still uses external lighthouse tracking and everything when you know the Oculus has just everything built in. It's really cool, um, but. That I got the, the Oculus Touch, the uh, CV1, I think, was my first headset. And then it died on me after about three solid years of use. And uh, and they didn't sell them anymore. And the Rift S was about to be discontinued. Um, so I just jumped on the Quest 2 train. And, and oh, boy, I'm really glad I did. It's such a cool little headset. But... I'm not. I get away from that. I don't need to. Don't need to plug the Quest Two, but it's certainly a good. It's certainly like right now. It's probably the most attractive headset on the market. You know, like because the nearest competitor is probably like the Reverb Two, but it costs like twice as much and has, you know, from what I've read, like the tracking on it is not so great and the controllers aren't as good and it doesn't offer wireless VR and that that's a wireless VR is a game changer. I'm not having. The tethers and not getting tangled up and not having the cable like dragging on your back, kind of breaking your immersion, uh, is is a huge deal. So I mean, it's a, a big deal. Definitely, you know that's. Thank you for the, um, I guess the 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 glowing praise to the Quest Two, only because you know, like you said, if if it is able to, you know, if if it is dis removed from Facebook, I don't know the right word for uh, disintegrated. I don't think it's the right word, yeah. but um that's that's a good thing to to keep in mind that it could be a very viable option and you know um so yeah I'll, I'll keep that in mind especially if it's something that they pull that that chunk out of because i i as well agree that i would very much like to not have to spend a thousand dollars on a on a vr device you know yeah yep it's definitely uh it's definitely something that i think when because like i really think it's difficult to to see VR as anything but like a gimmick until you've actually like really tried it yourself and not just like tried it at, you know, Best Buy playing whatever little gallery shooter they have to demo, but like really playing like, like uh, hot dogs, horseshoes and hand grenades or Boneworks or one of those games that really leverages like the, you know, really leverages the technology to create a unique experience. And like, you know, when, when the entry price is $700 or $1,000, like it's going to be tough to talk anybody into giving that a shot. But I mean, gosh, the, the Quest 2 was like $299 when I bought it. And oh man, I would have, I, I wish I could have jumped on that back when I first got into everything because I bought the CV1 and the extra lighthouse and and it was like, oh, this is like $600, $700 altogether back then. And I mean, worth it. It was a great headset, but yeah. Yeah, you know, like, like I said, definitely. 
good things to to keep in mind and you know yeah like it's i i imagine as as technology goes forward and time goes forward we're we're, we're just going to see more and more options that present themselves in in great ways you know yeah for sure i'm really excited to see. i i really want to get into vr development but it's uh it's so much harder than regular development like just like even just like from a testing standpoint, having to like get into your headset and like get comfortable and get situated every time you want to test something out, but also just like like uh, trying to like predict what the player is going to do with like with Pancake, it's easy. Like I in, in Cultic, when you have the shotgun eyes, you left click, the shotgun's going to shoot. And if you press R, the shotgun's going to reload and it's all animated. So there's no guesswork as to how that's going to go. But in VR, I don't know how people are going to use the weapons. I don't know. I don't know how someone's going to swing the axe. Are they going? Are they going to swing it? Are they going to try to like stab people with it? Are they going to throw it? You know, like you, you have to kind of like expect what the player is going to do and provide a feedback option for it. And it's like one of one of like the big things with Resident Evil 4 VR. One of the, one of my few complaints about it is like uh, Leon's knife. You can't stab with it. You can only swipe with it. Which is like you know you swiped with it in the game. So that make in the original game. So that makes sense. But like like Stabbing is a this is sound a little serial killer, I guess, but like stabbing is a natural <laughs> motion with a pointy object, right? Like you know, you like you have a knife that has a point. You're like if there's an enemy in front, you want to stab him with it, and but that's not like a registered movement, and it's like that's something they probably should have anticipated. Like players have a knife, they're they're gonna try, you know, if they get caught in close quarters with an enemy, they're probably gonna try to stab with it, and like I don't think it would have been that much more difficult to detect movement along like the forward facing axis of the knife as opposed to the lateral like sideways axis so but you know it's just stuff like that like you have to really anticipate what the player is going to do and like <laughs> that can be that can be a whole nother can of worms so i'd like to get into development some into vr stuff a little more someday i i tinkered with it a bit when i first got my oculus um but it was honestly kind of disheartening when you're like getting started with VR and then at the same time, like Half-Life Alex is coming out and Boneworks is coming out and all of these games that have like these really cool like VR, like physical rigs for the player and like really impressive physical interactions with enemies and stuff like that. And you're like, I'm screwed. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to pancake development. <laughs> you know, yeah, definitely. I can, I can understand. Cause that is, as you said, it's a whole, whole different space, whole different, uh, a whole different everything right so i can definitely understand that and you know maybe hopefully in the future it's something that you are able to uh be more ready for i guess is the the way to say it yeah just just have the time to tinker with it i guess but uh, but anyway i think i think yeah uh, i think you were trying to wrap up and i went off on a vr tangent so sorry about oh that. no worries whatsoever jason um but yeah i do want to let you go i don't want to take up uh, I don't want to take up your whole evening. Let you let you have some more downtime and and relax before you know you start your next day of more development for Cultic. However, you know, just so it's out there, where can people find more information about you? Oh, pretty much everything about Cultic um, and about the development gets posted on my Twitter, and that's at Jsaws Games. J A S O Z Z two Z's Games, um, and I'm sure I'm sure you'll have a, a link to that in the the podcast notes but yeah that's pretty much where everything gets posted at um so for now yeah any any updates on the game or development or you know announcements should pretty much uh, be going there awesome and thank you so much for that because i definitely will as you said put that put that out there i'll also make sure that the steam page is available and easily accessible 
Cool. Yeah, the, there is a there is a demo out right now. Been updated. Just got updated for Halloween with a with a brand new survival mode uh, that you can play over and over and over again and and put all of my scores to shame apparently. So yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. I personally do not think I will try and put your score to shame with uh, with that survival difficulty mode. Um, however, I encourage anyone else to try and up show you when get uh what was it higher than the d ranking absolutely yep b uh, get a, get a c or better on extreme and you've officially done better than me <laughs> well there we go so i i personally i don't think i'd be able to achieve that but i'll leave i'll leave that to to the other people and to the the some that have already achieved were easily able to achieve s in 24 hours miraculously <laughs> All right, so Jason, if there wasn't anything else that you wanted to discuss, I will let you get on with your evening, though, okay? Oh, that works for me. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, and thanks for having no, me. No, Jason, the, the pleasure was all mine. Uh, you know, I, I'm very grateful that you were able to make some time to talk to me, so, you know, thank you so much for that. It was a, it was fun getting to talk about, you know, your, your favorite game, uh, games that didn't click, you know, uh, and, and some more about Cultic. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. So again, thanks again to our guest, Jason, for making time to have this conversation with me. And thank you for joining us on the Red Tunic podcast, as well as a special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for the use of his music from the title track from Road Steep. And if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe or follow me on Twitter at Red Tunic Podcast to receive the latest episodes and news. And be sure to share with those you also think might enjoy it. Thanks. And until next time. <laughs>